Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hello and welcome back to FT Science with me, Clive Cookson. Today we'll be talking about risk analysis and about a possible treatment for septic shock, which is one of the least known big killers in the world's hospitals. But first I'd like to say hello to our studio guests, Diana Garnham, who's Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council and who's now very much a regular on the show. Hello, Diana. Hello, Clive. What have you been up to since last time? Uh, this has been a very busy week. We're just putting the final parts of work in, in place for monitoring annual monitoring of CPD for chartered scientists. We will be the first of the chartered bodies to introduce this in the sector. I think so. you might need to enlighten our listeners about right. CPD. Um, this is continuous professional development and it's, it's normal for all professions and in all sectors. And good scientists do carry out continuous professional development. What's important to us is that we need to reassure the public that they are doing that and to monitor it. And we are introducing that and it has its difficulties, but we're getting there. I can imagine so. Well, good luck with that. And we're also joined today by Philip Thomas, who's Professor of Engineering Development at City University here in London. He's here to talk about risk analysis. Welcome, Philip. Thank you, Clive. And finally, Andrew Jack, who is my right-hand man here at the FT. Hello, Andrew. Hello there. So let's start with risk analysis and a little bit of background on Philip. I first came across him about 10 years ago when he was working on what I think turned out to be the first accurate prediction of future deaths from VCJD, the human form of mad cow disease. And for the last five years, amongst other things, he's been constructing a framework for companies and industries so that they can assess objectively how much they should spend protecting against accidents and other events that might kill people and damage the environment. And the results were published in a report last week. Perhaps you can start with a brief summary of what you came up with, Philip. Yes, indeed. It's a technique that we call the J-value, J for judgment, and the point about it is that it actually deals with life expectancy, which is a far more precise way of dealing uh, with human harm than the current way of looking at saving someone's life, because you can't actually save anyone's life. We all die in the end. We all die in the end. That's absolutely right, Clive. The best you can actually do is restore their life uh, to what it was before. Um, you can't say how long it's going to be, but you can actually say you can actually use life expectancy as a measure for that. And so we actually deal with life expectancy, and that's the, that's the basis for one part of our J for judgment value technique. So saving a child, obviously, is far more important than saving a middle-aged man like me we think so yes we think we think that's an ethical decision and uh, we would weight a child's life as, as as more important than someone who is older yes we would okay that's 
saving lives or rather putting off deaths. How about assessing spending against environmental damage, which is obviously very much in the news now with the BP oil spill disaster in the Gulf. I think that the the link between the two is actually the parameter called risk aversion. And people who are risk averse, they have a, a number of properties. They, they will, someone who is more risk averse will want to spend more on insurance against uh, life's mishaps. They will generally wish to reduce their exposure to to harm and this is a parameter which we actually use in the j value uh, and in the j value we actually regard it as a as a constant which is basically an average value when we move on to look at environmental costs and the environmental costs of a big accident of course with with bp we're we're seeing that it's not only the cleanup cost it's also the political cost the damage to the environment possibly in the case of a, of a nuclear power station one might be looking at evacuation there are a whole whole set of environmental costs but we can actually use the utility theory that was put on a sound footing by von Neumann uh, and Morgenstern back in 1944, and we can actually use that uh, to characterize uh, how much you should be spending on preventing an environmental accident. So, Philip, if you you know, try to actually plug into your equation, let's say, the amount that BP spent in preparing against a potential oil leak, or indeed how much governments internationally spent preparing for the flu pandemic over the last year. Could you actually say, you know, they've they've spent not enough, they spent too much? Have you indeed tried to do that even? Uh, that's exactly what we can do, in, certainly in theory. One of the big things that we can we claim for our two methods, and we can combine the two as well, is that we can tell you when you should stop spending on safety and the environment. It isn't that you should spend without limit. Uh, there is a finite limit. And in fact, that, that limit is defined by something we talk about as the point of indiscriminate decision. And as you get more risk-averse, uh, so you will be more inclined to spend more money, but less enthusiastic about doing so. And what this means is that as you, in order to spend a very large amount of money, uh, you need to increase your risk aversion to the point where it is your motivation to do so becomes very small indeed. And in fact, you can't see the difference between spending on something which is a, a safety and environmental protection scheme and spending on nothing at all, or even, and this is a quite extraordinary figure, and all this comes out of the mathematics, or even on a scheme which will actually increase your possibility of having an accident. You just can't tell the difference. We think this is a, a mathematical analogue of panic, and we don't think anyone should be taking decisions in a state of panic. And so that actually sets an upper limit and so coming back to your original question, yes, you can have a look at what the possibility is of having a, a large accident, quantify that, and then you can provide an upper limit on what you should be spending, and you should spend up to that. If you can get away with it cheaper, fine, but you should be prepared to spend up to that level. I've just got a question about how does that actually work out in the boardroom or in a, in a discussion with the public when you're making a, a decision to either invest or not invest in some strategies to mitigate risk? 
And what sort of skill mix, what sort of information are you putting on the table for the boardroom and for the people who are making the decisions? It's presumably not just mathematicians and mathematics. No, I think what one of the things is that this is the first time uh, that it's been possible to come up with an objective answer to how much should be spent to protect human safety and also to protect the environment. So that's what comes out of it. How do you do that? What you will need is you will need a knowledge of the probability of the accident occurring, and there are techniques for doing that, and then you'll need to know how much the protection system is going to cost. You'd also like to know what the probability of the accident occurring will be once you've installed your protection system. But that's not too significant as long as it reduces the prior probability, the before probability, by a large factor. Could this technique also be used for public health issues, like how much to spend protecting against multiple deaths from a new pandemic, for example? Yes, it could. It's a management tool which requires you to know probabilities. In a, uh, you need to calculate those. Uh, that's something which is, which is done, for instance, in the nuclear industry through probabilistic risk assessment, and they do, a, they do a stack of that. I'm not sure, for instance, that they did that on the BP oil rig. I haven't seen anyone saying that. I've seen, I think they didn't. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but coming to medical matters, we would apply, yes, the, the both techniques would be, would be applicable. We actually combine them into something we call the JT value, um, and JT stands for total judgment, and you should spend up to a JT of one. And you can indeed apply that to medical matters as well as industrial matters. Thanks very much. Well, I think we'll move on now to medical matters in a slightly different context and to Science Magazine and indeed to Robert Frederick in Washington. Thanks, Clive. It can be problematic to develop a drug to block an enzyme. That's because enzymes can have more than one function in the body. But as Illyrio Melendez and colleagues report in the latest issue of Science, blocking an enzyme may be the best path to treat patients with sepsis, a condition in which the body's own response to an infection can lead to death. In patients with sepsis, the immune cells, the white blood cells, get hyperactivated. Anyone can get sepsis, and infection triggers it. According to the American Medical Association, sepsis occurs in 1-2% to of all hospitalizations in the United States affecting at least 750,000 persons and costing 17 billion U.S. dollars per year to treat. And during that hyperactivation, they secrete a lot of cytokines and chemokines. These are proteins that are secreted by the immune cells, which actually perpetuate and amplify this overwhelming inflammation. And the outcome isn't good. A third to half of the people who develop sepsis die far more than the total number of deaths in the U.S. from prostate cancer, breast cancer, and AIDS combined. Of course, sepsis is a worldwide problem. What we found is that this enzyme called syncosine kinase 1 is critical for the mechanisms that lead to the secretion or the production of a number of these cytokines and chemokines. We found the enzyme is highly elevated in patients from sepsis, but when we block this enzyme, we actually restore the normal functions or actually reducing the overwhelming inflammatory function of these cells. Allowing Melendez and his team to treat mouse models of septic shock experimentally and prevent the dysfunction and death from sepsis. Blocking the enzyme reduces the inflammation and antibiotics help the body clear the infection. So a combination therapy of a blocker of single kinase 1 and a broad-spectrum antibiotic 
we found that that combination therapy is actually even more effective than either alone because one of the current treatments in intensive care units and in hospitals is the use initially of a broad spectrum antibiotics. But they have to be used in massive doses to try to control this inflammation. The downside and side effect of these strong antibiotics is that very quickly, within a couple of days, can start causing liver damage just because of the antibiotic alone. But Melinda says that the sphingosine kinase 1 inhibitor that he and his team have developed still needs work before it's ready for stepping through the drug approval process. And we have looked at chronic inflammation as well as allergic diseases and its roles in sepsis or septic shock. And in all these cases, we have found that sphingosine kinase 1 is activated strongly only during the inflammatory response. Now, of course, more work needs to be done to really identify whether there are any physiological roles that we are not seeing currently, and that might potentially be a cause for caution. But currently, we haven't seen any such an effect. The only other medicine developed specifically to treat sepsis, a natural protein called activated protein C, also works by reducing inflammation. But according to the U.S. National Institutes of Health, it only reduces the risk of dying from severe sepsis by about 6%. Many patients do not benefit from the drug at all, and the potential benefit must be balanced against an increased risk of bleeding. Melinda says the timeline for getting his team's drug to clinical trials may be as short as two years, if all goes well with further drug development. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Robert, and thanks again to AAAS and Science. So I think septic shock sounds like a really good example of a big, unmet and underpublicized medical need, as the jargon puts it, which maybe the pharmaceutical and biotech industries should be doing more to address. What, what do you think, Andrew? There's been a mismatch, clearly, between resources, research and need. Uh, of course, sepsis is something that potentially is a very large market, but I suspect is also quite clinically challenging, particularly in terms of constructing trials, getting consent and actually then testing effectively, as well as perhaps there being still significant gaps in understanding of the mechanisms of action and therefore how to respond. But I think clearly it's one of a number of niche areas that hopefully we will see a lot more interesting in the coming years has some similarity with the discussion on tuberculosis last week in that some of these issues are there in the background and we are, you know, lose our attention span and people aren't interested in it. Philip, you're a very multidisciplinary man for an engineering professor. I'm sure you've got something to contribute as well on this. Well, it, it, it was interesting. Um, the... The other thing, of course, is the side effects and, and the risks. I mean, clearly there's, there's a big market. So if, given there's, there's a big market, a lot of uh, pharmaceutical companies presumably will be, will be very interested in this. Um, what might be holding them back is uh, the possibility of, of some side effects, of some risk. I'd be very interested in, in knowing more about that. I think ph pharmaceutical companies, though, do to some extent put resources into what's on the public agenda. It's not entirely driven purely by financial calculations and best returns to investors and shareholders, is it, Andrew? 
Well, there's no doubt, for example, HIV was a very, as we talked about before, was a very exciting new area. So there was a lot of scientific appetite, research interest and advocacy. It's true that a lot of hospital-related diseases, acquired infections and so on, are not high up the agenda, as indeed are things like polypharmacy, older patients using multiple drugs, studying the interactions between them. Very important for late life survival, but actually really chronically understood, under, under understood, if I can put it that way. But it's not surprising, is it, that the pharmaceutical industry is going to try and look at the focus attention on the issues that are on the public agenda, because actually we have a public health system that is, is going to be required to pay for whatever the treatment is. So unless there needs to be a twin strategy, you've got to solve the scientific problem and find a new drug or treat or therapy, but you've also got to get the will to pay for that within the NHS. I can say something about research, looking at uh, at payment and looking at the activities of NICE. When we were originally doing our J-value work, we were looking for uh, somebody who was who could who was going to own up to spending less than J equals one, and we didn't find that in the transport industry. We didn't find that in the nuclear industry, but we did find that with NICE, who uh, actually set a limit at J equals point two. So we thought that they could be spending on drugs about five times more than they are. So the message is actually governments are perhaps less responsible or willing to consider the risks and the implications of investment to mitigate risks than companies, for example. I I think it comes back to this the idea of a level playing field, that these things can now be quantified and they should be quantified, and we should be looking at the health of our citizens, the life expectancy of our citizens on a rational and uniform basis. Well, thanks very much. We've been talking, I think, in a really fascinating way today about risk, disease, and how much to spend, what resources to put in to try and reduce the toll, whether it's of a nuclear accident or sepsis in a a hospital. Philip, Diana, Andrew, and Robert in Washington, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.